Can you guys hear me? Yes, okay. sir. Yes. Right. Yep. So, Pastor Chad, why don't you lead us in prayer, brother, as we get ready? Uh, good and beautiful God, thank you for your glory and life that you give us. Thank you for all of the possibilities you hold for today and that you indeed hold the entirety of today and eternity. God, thanks for the opportunity to gather and look to you and grow and sharpen one another and discover more of who you are. God, we trust you to be in our minds and words and hearts, spirit, guided and love focused. God, we trust you with eternity, so we trust you with this time. We ask that you calm our minds and hearts to push out anything that, that would distract us from love and beauty and progress. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, first of all, I would just want to say thanks uh, for you guys taking some time out of your busy schedule uh, to just be um, on this call. I am uh, I am definitely honored and, and humbled to have your friendships um, beyond the stage. Um, and we all share something um, that is near and dear to my heart. And so I know that people may not uh, know who everybody is. But um, um, Justin, just tell everybody who you are and where you're from. Uh, Justin Payne, Minister of Music at Pleasant Green Baptist Church, Omaha, Nebraska. All right. Jerron? I'm Jerron Taylor, um, Jurisdictional Minister of Music for the Nebraska First Church of God in Christ. Oh, my. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Chad. Uh, Chad Stoner, pastor at Stony Brook Church of Omaha and minstrel here and there so hi uh sherry i am the other half of sherry he's over there to my right um i'm from memphis tennessee but i currently reside in jacksonville florida where i am the pastor at legacy ministries worship and arts center brother ted i'm ted when the other half ted and sherry and uh, I am a recording artist and a social justice advocate. I'm from Memphis, as Sherry is, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. Um, everybody, we call Chad at Salem Church, we call him Tyrone. So his, his name is uh, uh, Chad Tyrone Stoner. <laughs> <laughs> He's a part of the Salem Church. We, we have adopted him long before I, I got to Salem, but he's been a true friend and brother. Um, mm. His wife, Elaine, they are uh, an integral part of the extended Salem family, and, and we love them a great deal. And mm, so let's um, um, I, I spoke with Chad today. Chad's one of those people that just, you know, when, when, you, when you see him, you, you immediately feel the love um, that he has for you, and it's so genuine. And um, I appreciate his friendship, and um, he's, always, he's always there when you call him. Um, and, and as uh, the rest of you are as well. So um, I feel like today um, I, I want to I want to say what prompted me to just kind of have a discussion with some of my colleagues. Um, what prompted me was not just the George Floyd um, incident, uh, the murder of George Floyd, but what prompted me was something that I witnessed um of an event here in omaha and some people may say that maybe you're taking things out of context um 
but I'm just kind of tired of uh, words of empathy. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the I'm sorry's, um, but then you're still addressing us as colored people. And that's, that's a problem for me. Um, we are not, um, you know, African-Americans and people of, of dark complexion have been through a lot. And I feel like when you use words that are offensive to African-Americans um, and you know these words are offensive, I just believe that um, it's a part of your daily verbiage. This is something that you do on a consistent basis because there's as much as I love Chastoner, um, I would never call him a honky. I would never address him as a redneck. I just wouldn't because that is offensive to, to his race. And so I feel like we need to just kind of have a conversation and kind of talk about race and in, in the church, um, in our world. Um, and all of us on this call right now are artists. We are, so we, we write, we sing, we produce, we play uh, instruments. And so I feel like our voices, um, I guess Ted said it yesterday, we are looked at as commodity. Mm -hmm. our, our voices are so much more important. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of wanted to tell why I wanted to just kind of have this dialogue with, with you all um, so that we can just have a conversation. Mm -hmm. and if we can offer some solutions, um, bring some peace, because I want to, I don't want us to forget um, the death of George Floyd and um, the others that in the past that have been murdered or mistreated. I don't want us to just, okay, we've protested over the last seven or eight days, maybe nine days. Um, and then we protest for a couple of weeks and then that's it. I believe that the movement has to keep moving and we cannot be quiet and we cannot go into the night silent and forget about this. And then when the next, if it happens again, you know, there's another explosion. Um, so I just, I just want to, let's, let's, let's have some dialogue. Um, um, I want to start with Ted, you know, Ted, what's on your heart, man? Um, well, I mean, I think we, we are in a really interesting time um, where for most of us, um, you know, this is a lived experience. It's a lived reality. There's nothing new here to see. Um, but it seems like other people outside of the country and a lot of white people in, in America seem to be um, tuned in, paying attention, saying, oh, I didn't really understand, but now, you know, I, I understand there's a problem here. And so we're not having, we're seeing these protests, we're seeing these, these marches. Um, and we're also, while we're seeing unity in certain ways and we're seeing alliances built, we're also seeing divisions happen as well. We're seeing people who say, I thought you were with me, i.e. Drew Brees, and then you make a statement like about the national anthem. So I think there is, what we're seeing, I think is a clear demarcation of where people are. Um, and those of us who, those who are uh, 
are with us because they understand or they're attempting to understand where we are. We see that, we align with those people. And then there are other people who are still saying, you know, it's just a bunch of noise. And so I think that this is a watershed moment for sure for the country. I think that we can finally have the uncomfortable conversations we need to have about systemic change and oppression and the systems that have been in place for hundreds of years. I think that it's gonna be, you know, a marathon. It's not gonna be quick. I don't know how long the protests and the, you know, the marches continue, but there's a there's a lot that has to happen. There's a, a you know, some initial conversations. We have to be honest about, you know, what America is, how America got here. Because if your if your view of America and your um, the way you think about America is baseball and apple pie, right? And you know, fighting and, and these kind of advancements towards uh, a more perfect union then you're, you're going to be challenged to really understand America as a country that was born out of violence with the massacring of millions of indigenous people with the enslavement of Africans for 250 plus years. Then you had redlining and gerrymandering and lynching. And I mean, I am the first person and probably all of us on this call, I would think I'm the first person in my family, my, my generation is the first generation born with all of my rights. So just think about that. My mother was born in 1952, where she didn't, there were issues with voting and housing and, you know, Civil Rights Act didn't happen to the, to the late 60s. So I'm the first person, me, to be born with all of my rights. So that's where we are, just to set the context of where we are in this country and, and the conversations that we have to really have moving forward if we're going to do something that means meaningful change. Mm. That's good stuff. Um, Chad, let me hear from you, brother. Well, you know, I have an initial personal kind of a um, challenge that's not necessarily a, a curse, it's a blessing. And that is like most of my life and even my ministry has been with people in outside the walls of the church. You know, I came to know the Lord. I've, he, he's me with ministry so during this time I'm I know that I'm I'm challenged in my pastoral role because I'm very active and vocal and it always rubs the line of hey I'm also shepherd and representing a body of people so I as a side note I'm not I'm not toning down being vocal but I'm realizing that I don't like this um even the notion that it's anything has to be tweaked to make everyone happy in the church, because I think the church is a place of a lot of opportunity for change. Um, I think, you know, in my life, I'm finding that by and large, even the, the white people who want to participate, I think my life has been uniquely directed that I have an inordinate number of people in my life who are black and brown and um, but it's amazing even in the last two weeks how many people just do not have people of color in their lives just don't I just had a conversation shortly before the call where we have families where they're the family and their kids have just had no real relationships and so there's kind of a what's the big deal attitude and so there's a, that is on my mind. And that is, how is it that, what are the opportunities to begin to learn 
and have relationships and know more intimately um, the stories and, and timelines of people. It's, you, you can see it on TV. You know, there's no shortage of, you know, every link is X number of things white people can do to, you know, be participating. There's, um, you can watch it on TV, but gosh, until it's in your life, it's just a great challenge. It's a great challenge. Um, and right now my efforts kind of pastorally and even in social media is to begin, it's not unspiritual or disingenuous to just start to find a plan in your own life to add new things to your rhythms, spiritual disciplines, habits, intentional things that those are the things that are going to make this last beyond just an emotional buzz that happens for a month and then goes away. There's going to have to be some sticking point that's intentional. Um, so that's the, that's the giant question mark with some ingredients in it, but lack of relationships is a, a challenge. Okay. All right. Sherry, let me hear from you. Well, I was thinking earlier today about this, the scripture, <clears throat> one of my favorite scriptures, actually, um, God is the spirit. And they that worship him must worship him. Spirit and truth is, I believe in that same passage, Fergus says that he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Now, there's further, there's furtherance to that scripture. But that stuck out to me. And I think the challenge, if I flip that, is to know something exists, you must believe it does. Mm. See what I'm saying? So for a lot of people, um, I think this has been an awakening and an eye opener to a problem that we have experienced. We have seen, our foreparents have seen, our forefathers, foremothers have seen. But there's no reason, there's no way in the world there's no that the stories that I, my parents told me um, of things that were happening to their parents or to them, I shouldn't have to tell my kids the same story. Mm -hmm. that this, is, this is happening over and over. But there is a group, I think, that this particular tragedy has awakened the eyes of people who did not, they had no reason to see or no reason to believe because a lot of our white brothers and sisters do not understand the direct privilege that they enjoy. And so to see this on a playing field now that we have amplified media where you can see it 24 hours a day, um, it's now becoming a real problem. I find it interesting that in a global pandemic where African-American people, people who look like us, are the most disenfranchised from COVID-19, partially because of under <coughs> are risking everything to go in the streets and say, that pandemic is trouble, but this one is, has been going on a lot longer and we're tired. So, you know, I think that rallying behind the people who are standing up and saying enough is enough, we're all tired, we're all mentally exhausted. 
the challenge for me is those who have a platform and are saying nothing. Mm. Saying absolutely nothing. That's a problem for me. And I think that it goes back to my earlier statement. You have to believe that there is one in order for you to say it. And I think that this has been a rude awakening. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. I didn't experience, and, and empathy, as, as, as Pastor Chad was basically saying, empathy and relationships. If we would just take a moment to, for just a second, consider somebody else's experience. And I don't think that there has been a lot of that. To a lot of um, ethnicities and races, they think that all we do is gripe. All we do is gripe, all we do is, is, is complain because a lot of them are not aware or, or shall I say they are aware or, or maybe they don't, are not as aware as they should be of the privileges that they enjoy. But when you're the disenfranchised people, it's kind of hard to miss. And it's, it's gotta be very, very serious when we couldn't go out of the house. We can't, we've been out of the house for three months. <laughs> we've been out of the house for three and a half months and people are packing in the streets like sardines and not only in the, in the United States, all over the world. Because the truth is, George Floyd is not the first. This ain't mm. the first time this happened. It's filmed now. Right. So you can't look at it, you know, you don't want to see a train wreck, but you can't walk away from it and act like it didn't happen. You can't see it. So what do we do with this energy now? Mm. What do we do now? It's, it's got to be more than us standing. On my helmet! There's systemic change that needs to happen, as Ted said earlier. It, it needs to happen now and it needs to happen fast. And, you know, to, to just walk away and behave as if it doesn't happen because it did not affect you, your community. I'm not just my brother's keeper, I'm my brother. So whatever is happening to you is happening to me. And if we all position ourselves like that, even if it's not our collective experience, well, what, what must that have been like for you? And if you only just take a moment, because you know there were those that were saying COVID was a hoax mm. until somebody in your family died. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, part of the reason I asked Duran and Justin to get on because they they are millennials, they're a little bit younger than than all of us on this call, and I just wanted to kind of hear from the millennials before we kind of go any further, but. Um, Jerron, let's, let me hear from you, brother. Um, well, um, let's kind of talk to somebody about this earlier, earlier today, and it really goes back to how we put band-aids over, uh, everything through the years. So true healing hasn't gone forward. Yeah. So we, we, we got, we've had slavery, we had the civil rights era, we had the Jim Crow era, and it's in the constitution for us to have rights as African-Americans. You, you can't deny rights uh, to people of, of color and all that. So they had to do this. So they put the scab over all the screaming, all, all the uh, protests and all the marching, put a scab over, all right, you got to get rights. So let's keep it going. Let's keep it moving. Okay, yeah, you're right. Let's get rights about this. So, but really the heart hasn't been changed. Um, I remember uh, back in 2005, I had uh, surgery on my foot, and this might be a little gory, but uh, it's, it's reality. When, when they took the cast off, the wound was still ha hadn't healed. And so usually when you take the cast off, it's basically time for physical therapy, but 
they had to go in each and every day and recut the wound, clean out all the dead, uh, uh, dead tissue, dead skin that grew on it until the wound healed from within. And so I think as a country, we, we, we put band-aids over what has been going on. They've given us what we, we've asked for, but they never really changed within our heart. So right now, there's, what we're seeing out is people, you know, disgusted with how the, you know, authority above us has treated us over the years. So now we're, we're, we're fighting back, we're kicking back because healing has uh, gone forth. And in order for this country to move forward, I believe you have to acknowledge that there is an issue. You have to acknowledge that there are problems, that there have been problems that not just change the laws, but change your heart. And if you don't change your heart and talk to an African-American or, or a minority about why they feel a certain way and come to an understanding, then we'll never resolve this. This will be a recurring issue years and years and years down the road. So really, you can change all the laws. You can you can make new mandates. But if that person uh, doesn't change what's in their heart, what's in their intent, then this is going to be a consistent issue going down the road. So I, I feel like in order for us to move forward, they have to listen. And they have to uh, understand that this is reality. This is what's really going on. People are not upset because uh, not just George Floyd uh, died, but this has been a recurring issue over the years. And now it's coming to uh, a head. You know, we've been protesting for years about this. We've been speaking about this for years. And now we're tired. It was a straw that broke the camel's back. And people are just ready to just, they don't know what to do. Like Sherry said, we've been cooped up in a house for three months. And so you, you got somebody cooped up in the house and you got crazy things going on. Of course, they're going to react, you know, a little bit more crazy than they would have before. But it was needed because we needed tension. We needed uh, to get bothered in order for true healing to go forth. And I believe if if they people who don't see the way that we're that we're seeing things or it's being displayed, if they don't take it within their heart to change, then this this will never end. This will be a recurring issue with the next generation. All right. Justin, thanks, uh, Jerome. Um, I guess my biggest thing is, you know, or has always been, you know, when we face things like this, we have, you know, our white brothers and sisters who have, for the most part, always maintained the attitude like, well, you know, it's not happening to me, so I'm not going to really be invested in it. And um, it's been a, it's really been a struggle you know, for me, you know, I was blessed to travel, you know, overseas and, you know, I really didn't get a good taste of some subtle racism until, you know, I got overseas. And then most recently, uh, when I went to uh, London, I went to a museum and I was looking at pictures and I thought, you know, they were telling history, you know, of the U.S. in the 60s, you know, like with the Black Panther Party and protesting police brutality. But that was, you know, over in London. And so then to hear the video with the Hillsong pastor over there saying that, you know, that racism is basically an American problem. I'm like, but I mean, it's, it's in your own backyard. And, and the guy that picked, picked us up from the airport was telling us, you know, that, you know, they have their communities where, you know, that the black people are all in certain communities, communities, and it's just, you know, as dangerous as it is, um, you know, here. And, um, you know, even, you know, growing up in Omaha, my grandmother and my dad, they never let me forget that, you know, they, the city of Omaha decided to build a freeway through the largest black neighborhood and just broke up families and broke up communities. And if you come in Omaha and you drive down and you get to like 20, 20, uh, fifth street, 
uh, past the North Freeway and you go north and south on any one of those back streets, you will just see how it doesn't make sense. Like the freeway was built in, of course, okay, the freeway makes sense. But the way that the houses, you know, are now lined up and the corners turn, it's like something actually used to be here. And, you know, things like, you know, things like that have been happening for so long. And like, you know, Jerron said, it's like putting gunshot, putting a Band-Aid over a gunshot wound and just expecting, you know, us to heal and be okay with it. And it's like, no, we actually need uh, more stronger measures to bring about the healing rather than just saying, all right, here you go. Let's shut you up and we'll just keep on pressing forward. Like we can't accept that anymore. Okay. That's good stuff. Uh, Dr. Percy Beatty, man, let's let's hear from you, man. It's good to see you, man. It's good to see you guys too. I got you. Good to see you all, and man, what a man! I I I don't even know where to begin because this is. I'm sitting here looking at our young generation. I'm listening to them talking. It just breaks my heart that that we're still 2020 we're still dealing with something that you know nobody had the guts enough to to face and to admit um um you know it's it's really unfortunate um i've had two calls recently from white friends in the industry who now all of a sudden one who I tried to reach out to because she has a retreat place up in uh in a place and I wanted to take some songwriters away for a retreat and I wanted to use her place and I've been trying to reach this lady for three four years and yesterday morning I get a text from her she's white and I get a text from her saying hey we need to get together and we should do it now because the world needs. And I, I'm not going to repeat what I said. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the Holy Spirit immediately told me, don't say anything to be quiet. And I did. Uh, but the reality is, is, and then I got a text from somebody else. Hey. Here's a song I did. Maybe we can all do it together. Man, this is bigger than a song. This ain't about a song. This is not a, this is, I, I don't care about a song right now. There, this, a song will not fix what is going on. It, it won't fix it. I'm sorry. It won't fix. People seeing us together will not fix it. They seen us together before. And look at what happened. That's not going to fix it. It's like Jerron said, you have to go inside the root of this thing. You got to deal with the root of the problem. See, there's a surface level thing. The surface level thing, everybody says, well, you know, okay, you know, yeah, we admit that there's been some problems and they need to be addressed. And so what we'll do is we'll throw you, they'll throw you something. They throw you a bone. You know what you know who eat bones? Dogs. So and to me that's just another indication that the the there is no genuine genuine intent to to deal with this on a level where 
you know, things can really be done. I'm not talking to nobody anymore on the other side unless we're talking about equality, if we're talking about justice, if we're talking about standing on what we should be standing on from a true perspective, if it does not help my people, if it, and I said my people, and I, I have no fear and no shame in saying my people, because guess what? George Floyd was my people. Aubrey, Aubrey, uh, 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 what's his last name? Uh, Ashad, Assad, Assad. He was, he Ahmaud was my Arbery. people. Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad, Ahmad Arbery. That was, that was my people. Mm-hmm. And everybody else, then it's a shame that I, I can go down the list of some more names. And so when do we say enough is enough? You don't think God is sitting back saying, you guys created this mess. You don't think he's sitting back saying, you guys fix it. I believe he'll intervene. But the reality is, is guess what? Until you guys are willing to sit at the table, until we can sit at the table, I don't just want to sit seat at the table no more, though. I want equity now. I want equality and I want equity. Because that's what's going to enable the generation that comes behind me and the generation that comes behind them to have. That's what we have to create. And if we're not doing that, then I don't agree with the looting. I don't, but I understand it. I get where it comes from. You know what? You treat people like animals and don't expect them to act like that. So that's where I am, uh, Marky. Um, thanks, Percy. This this is a lot to unpack. I, you know, for me, until you can at least acknowledge that as an African, you see African American men. Um, we are under under fire all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what it's like to be pulled over by the police because they thought you were in the wrong neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was in Oakbrook, Illinois. I went to Chicago, took my dad out for, uh, we had Father's Day brunch. We went to Batter and Berry's Perry, I mean, uh, Percy. And uh, and I hung out with my son, Josh, and my cousins. And I was staying in Oak Brook because I was going to Willow Creek um, for their conference. And so I stayed in Oak Brook and I was out late and I got pulled over by the police as I was turning into my hotel. And I asked him, why did he pull me over? And, and he said, well, you didn't, you turned on a no turn on red sign. I said, officer, there was no sign um, at the stoplight. He said, well, you really can't see the sign because it's been vandalized. And so I said, well, why am I being charged? I, I don't know that, I don't live here. And, you know, he still requested my license and, you know, the registration on the car insurance or whatever. And, you know, that was very scary but then I know what it's like to be pulled over because of the type of car that you drive. You know, I was, I was in I'm here in Omaha, Nebraska, got pulled over in my own driveway, followed me for about five or six miles. And he said, when I got out of the car, I'm in a, I don't know, three piece suit, y'all. It's a Sunday. I'm coming from the hospital doing a hospital visit. 
And he says, the officer says to me, he says, what, is this your car? And I simply replied to him, you've already run my plates. So yes, this is my car. And he said, what, what type of work do you do? I said, I'm the minister of music at the Salem Baptist Church down in North Omaha. He said, I, I know Salem. He said, and you live out here? And I said, well, I didn't know. Thank you, Tammy. I didn't know that I couldn't live where I wanted to live at. And to me, that's a problem. And until we deal with those type of things, um, um, we're going to continue to have this problem. And until we acknowledge and there is um, change on, on all sides, from government to police um, officials, um, uh, whether it's local, state, national, there has to be some type of change and there has to be a real conversation and not just I'm standing with you and you have my prayers and then you still are allowing racism and the mistreatment of, of minorities and, and people who are not in certain income brackets. And, and, and I believe that we have to deal with those issues and be honest and honesty it will not be easy. And you have to hear us and what, we, what we're trying to get across. Um, we live in a state, well, I live in a state, uh, Jerron and, 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 and Justin, but we have a, a governor who spent $330,000 of his own money to overturn the death penalty in Nebraska. Now, what does that say? Most people that are on death row are what? African-American men, minorities. So you spend $330,000 of your own finances so that you can overturn this law. It says something, but I think we have to have these real conversations and people say, why the church? Well, the church, the civil rights movement was birthed out of the church. And so standing on stage and saying, I'm praying with you or I'm praying for you is not enough because the slave master used the Bible against the slave to keep them in check. So I need you to, I, it needs to be more than just um, prayer. It's about you using your voice and your platform to speak out about social injustice and not just saying, okay, we pray, we protested and that's it. No, because if we don't force their hands, it will never change. And we can't have people who are in the corner cutting side deals. No, this has to be justice for all. So, I mean, so I, I think to your point, something you said and something that um, I think Jerron said earlier that I thought was interesting is like, I, I do understand that a lot of people of faith approach this, um, you know, as a heart issue, right? And I understand that. And I'll be, you know, for the purposes of everybody watching on Facebook Live, whatever I say is me, is not anybody else, 
right? These are my opinions. Um, I'm just not there, right? And the reason I say this is because I, I was thinking about when he said that, I thought about Dr. King. Dr. King said it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. And so I think not to give up on changing people's hearts. I'm not saying that's not a thing people should do if that's your thing. But what I'm concerned about as a priority for me is how we change the laws in this land and the and how we deconstruct systemic racism in ways that will protect the lives of black people, brown people, all minority groups in this country. Because I can't wait for you to get your heart right. Right, that may never come, <laughs> that just might never happen. And so what I need to do is make sure that you are not able to will the systems um, and, and weaponize those systems against me and other minority people in ways that benefit and privilege you. And so I think that we have to have, again, real conversations around policy, again, like how we got where we are um, and then what do we do about it? How do we do these things? And we talked about like people just saying thoughts and prayers, and I'm with you and all that stuff. It doesn't, that stuff doesn't matter. We talk about even things like the death penalty. Like, I don't think we talk enough about America's obsession with violence. I mean, we think about like, you look at all these people out protesting, everybody has freaking guns. Like, like why does anybody in a civil society need a gun? Even in the UK, the police don't even have guns. So there's just a, something about our mindset that again, because we have this Christian context, but it's meshed together with this kind of violent kind of thing as well. I mean, even we look at the criminal justice system, it's not rehabilitative, it's not redemptive, it's punitive. It's like, I'm going to punish you because that's a lot of people's God view, right? And so because America is not a Christian country per se, but that those ideas inform the birth of the nation, um, that kind of stuff is incorporated in it. And again, when you start violently, when you start massacring indigenous people, when you start with enslaving Africans, I don't know how you feel like that just goes away. People just have normalized it. They've sanitized these conversations that we have. And, and people don't like to have the, the difficult chats we have to have about where we are and how we got here. And then what we must do as a country to, to construct these systems that are really at play. I'm not really concerned about you know, the racist white person who calls me nigger. Like, that doesn't really bother me. What, what, what does concern me though, is that person who has that mindset being deputized by the state, given the power and authority of the state to shoot and kill me because he is racist and then having the state defend him, right? Because that's the system that's in place that would allow that to happen and for him to go home and go to sleep. So, the, the conversations, again, that I feel like we have to have, whether they're in church, out of church, um, it is around how we engage these systems. Mark, you said something I thought that was that was important to this conversation. The civil rights movement, most other civil rights movement that, I, that, that I've read about or studied in this country have come out of church, right? Black Lives Matter is the first major movement that did not come out of the church. Yep. The church should be having a conversation as to why that is. Where are we in this conversation? Why have we been silent on these issues? And I'm not talking about white churches, I'm talking about black churches. We've been mute on these issues. We have not been talking about these things. We've been talking about cars and houses and prosperity and your season and your all this other stuff. And people are still being murdered in the street. People are still being 
getting longer sentences. Black people still are going, our wealth is decreasing. We have black women are still three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. All these lives, we have to go on and on and on. But all these things are experiences that black people are having in this country and have been having, have been having for 401 years. And we have to have real dialogue about what we can do through the systems that are in place, through voting, through you know, um, marching, through protesting, whatever we can do, uh, creating awareness around these things to have that conversation. And again, it will not be easy to have because folks who live in privilege don't want to have those conversations. It is, it is, it's different in a way. But, but here, the parallel I'm drawing. I had to, in the course of my life, do the work to understand, try to understand the plight of women. So I didn't tell women what, what, what was real, what wasn't real. I didn't give them my opinions and my thoughts. I listened to them. I have four sisters. I have a mother. I have a grandmother. My great grandmother was in my life. I've been traveling the world with Sherry for, for years. So I listened to what women have said and what their conditions have been. That's how yeah. I learned to be empathetic. That's how I learned to consider myself a womanist at this point who really speaks up for those issues and stands for those things. And I consider myself an ally and a partner to fight for the, the equity of women. And I think that white people have to do the same thing. There is no other way to do it. You have to be empathetic. You have to listen. You have to understand the reality that we're talking about. And then you have to do the work to make sure that these systems that have benefited you for hundreds of years are deconstructed. That's what you got to do. There's no work around. But you know what? I, to echo what Ted is saying, I think that it will ring true if there is a contrasting belief. So it has more weight coming from, for instance, this country has benefited um, positions and power of men more than women. So for a woman to say, oh, listen to me, I have something to say, I have a voice, we already know that. But for a man to rally behind a woman and say, you know what, you're absolutely right. And what you're saying has merit, it has value, you deserve to be heard. I think that holds true for this problem of racism. We've been screaming forever. We were hurt, we're tired, we're sick of it. It will have more weight if those who it is not directly affecting, which is what's happening right now, stand up and say, you know what? I had I don't I don't know what this problem is specifically, but I can see that it's an issue. So what I'm saying is we will absolutely not tolerate this, if, even if it's simply as a as a letter from Sound Exchange. Everybody on here know about Sound Exchange, right? A letter from Sound Exchange today saying we will not tolerate X, Y, and Z. That's all we want. Just stand up and say, because they're in a position of power and they have a con and maybe it doesn't directly affect them because they're not of our ethnicity, whoever owns the company. But for you to specifically say, I see you, I hear you. I may not understand what you're going through, but it matters to me. That's really what this is about. And I think it has more weight because you have women in your life and you were the only boy most of the time uh, growing up. You have, I have a couple of brothers, but you grew up in a house with women. So for you to understand what their plight is and to simply say, you know what, this is not right because you heard their voice and you listened to them and your voice, which has a contradicting um, position or posture has weight because if I relinquish some of the power that I have to simply say, I'll share it. That's really what this is about. 
I'm interested to know, you know, circling back to the beginning, we've got the church that in times like this, and I want to walk softly because it's all important, but we have churches who in and of themselves may or may not be diverse, but have um, desire and interest for there to be change. Then we have these instances where those churches come together, and I think arguably the most diverse picture of the churches when churches are coming together for prayer and different things. But, you know, we've all been around a long time and there's value in that. But at what point, at what, what version of the church, what, what gathering do we activate? Like we have Kumbaya a lot. We have, look at us, we're together. We have like, we're having worship together and we care about the same thing. And we're going to, continue to care about the same thing and we all care about the same thing but when does the activation happen that's specific and strategic and aims for a thing to happen i there's something i don't know what that looks like what how how the church activates into some actual goal i watched a woman the other day saying, you know, she'd been an activist all of her life. She says, the idea is you do things and you pressure people to change and you continue to do and pressure and do and pressure until something's different. But I don't know that we get that far. I think we pull up short of whatever that looks like. And so I'm interested what any of you would think about what does a gathering of the church looks like when it's intended to activate, be specifically focused on something like this? Um, if I can uh, say something real quick. Um, so instead of having, you know, our, our convocations or our rallies, why don't we just come together and have a conference just dealing with the issue? You know, it's it, because... I know we all want to benefit from conferences, but this is a major benefit. If we can bring uh, both sides to the table and just really hammer out these issues, I think that'll be a small part to uh, really bridging the gap to where there's a disconnect between two bodies. Trini, Trini Massey from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just joined the call and good friend of mine. Uh, Trini, let's, let's hear from you. Chad just asked a question you know, and, and Trinity serves at the Mount Airy Baptist Church under uh, Dr. William Curtis. So uh, let's hear from you, Trinity. Um, just briefly, everybody has spoken so eloquently and I said it, I think the, um, the way to activate is to have order and we need to come together and someone has to um, be willing to be number one. Someone has to be willing to be okay with having number one anointing but being number two position. And it doesn't matter, um, it doesn't matter who is leading the charge as long as this person is galvanizing us coming together so the church can have a strong stance. Right now, um, everybody everybody outside of the church has organized, galvanized, come together. And now where the church is looking, what shall we do? What can we do? How can we do? And they're waiting to hear what we would have to say. And in order for the kingdom to make an impact, that means white, black, Asian, Puerto Rican, every creed and color has to come together and say, at the end of the day, this is about making sure um, that we uh, unite in love and power and strength and come against um, injustices, racism, anything that is negative and contrary to the kingdom of God. This is not a battle against um, black and white. This is a battle against good and evil. And at the end of the day, 
good has to win. And the only way good is going to win is if we decide to, you know, come together and quit, uh, quit, uh, quit, you know, well, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. I think we should do this. And literally let's put some things in place. Somebody has to take the lead. You know, the, the thing of the, the, uh, the civil rights movement, all of them had great voices. We had Dr. King, we had Malcolm X, we had some very, we had some militant people. We had, you know, at least there were leaders that were rising up. So what leaders from the church are rising up and want to um, want to speak? And I think a lot of them um, are afraid. Uh, this is Trini speaking. A lot are afraid to say something because they don't want to um, rub people the wrong way. But we got to rub people the wrong way. Jesus went in the temple and turned turned the whole thing out because it was wrong and whip people like let's get this in shape and at the end of the day if we're here to please people then we are definitely in the wrong business it needs to be the church has to be an agitator and we need to agitate some of these things that are going on because it's just not right and don't tell me that you saved you love the lord you sanctified you filled with the holy ghost you love everybody and you're quiet right now i can't hear exactly it. i need you speaking up just like um, i think sherry said it uh, i need you to be our voice and at this point we've been saying it. we've been crying we have saying we shall overcome till we can't sing it no more and we shall all be free until we can't sing it anymore we need your voice to speak up on our behalf and say no it's almost like um the big brother um, big brother, little sister, back in the day at the, pl the playground, if somebody started picking on your, yeah. your your little your sibling, you would step in and say, "No, I got this. Let me mm -hmm. let me handle this because you've you've tried, you've done all you can, and they're not listening. I got it. Let's go." And then there's a, there's also a, when you stand up and we stand up together, then there's an emboldening. There's um there's some more courage that rises up. We're like, okay, yeah, we can get this done. Let's do it together. There's a camaraderie that rises. So that would be my suggestion, quickly and just you know without going in forever. I, I want to say this. I believe the church does have a responsibility to, to preach and teach the word of God, but the church also has a responsibility to, to speak out against social injustice, to galvanize people, to protect people. Yeah. Um, we, we, we don't do that enough. And yes, it is going to cost you something. Yes. Um, you may lose funding from from certain organizations who, who, who give grants um, so that you can do certain projects. But I believe that if God has put things on your heart, I believe that he will provide the resources for you to do those things. But we cannot be afraid. And and those 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 conversations um, have to be intentional and it does take the right person to be in front of it i think part of within our culture i can say as african-american as an african-american man uh, sometimes we don't like taking the back seat mm. that it's always i want to be in charge i want to be up front and when you look at the history of the civil rights movement um there was that chatter as well you know it wasn't dr king chosen but there were others who wanted that position as well and so i think we have to be strategic in our uh, uh gathering um the civil rights movement was organized they they had they had a plan of action they just did not operate off emotion but they operated under a a plan of action and i think we have to build that I think we have to be intentional in where we spend our money. 
Absolutely. That sends a large message. The civil rights movement was successful because, the, or the bus boycott yes. was successful because money was being lost. And when you start messing with money, then that changes the whole, the whole game. And so I, but you know, that's just me. I don't, I want to dominate. Y'all go ahead. If I can tag in, you are so right, man. Um, um, for so long, um, it, it, it appears as though the church has been um, silent before even this situation. Um, and um, where we should be leading, we're basically following. And so this time and this, the pandemic, between the pandemic and being, between this racial divide, um, I believe that the church should be leading, but we can't because some of the leaders have been part of the problem. Um, and when you're part of the problem, um, it's easy to say, step back and say, well, I'll let them, I'll let them address it because I don't want to really confront what's inside of me because it may make me feel uncomfortable or it may, it may, it may challenge me to do what I've never done before. And that's see you as being equal to me, seeing us be the same. And I think that's one of the problems that we're having uh, with the church stepping ahead to lead. Um, you can't, first of all, you can't lead if you don't know where you're going. That's the first thing. Second, secondly, you can't lead if your intention is only to make sure that you're just leading and helping the good old boy club. Your, your leading has to be intentional about helping all people and leading all people. So as we, as we talk about sitting at the table to address this, as we talk about sitting at the table, not to, do, to just address, because we've sat at the table before. If we could be honest, we've sat at the table before. But here we are once again in 2020. And now, finally, black America says, okay, enough is enough. Negro, I am tired. I'm not going through this. This is not going. This is enough. This is enough. So now, finally, there is a unrest. There's an unrest and the unrest has not stopped. And I don't believe the unrest will stop until finally somebody says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This needs to be addressed and it needs to be handled in a way where everybody feels as though their voice is heard. The concerns are taken seriously and addressed and that economically we start putting programs in place that allow these 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 distressed neighborhoods to, to grow. Why should I have to move in order for my son to live? Why should I have to leave from where I am in order to make it? No, no, no. How about we find economic? Why don't we find money? Find Build up the neighborhoods that you got, you guys call the hood. Why don't we find the money to to build systems and put things in place 
that empowers the neighborhood to be able to survive on its own. My wife and I went walking this morning and we walked two miles from our house down King Drive where Pastor Chris Harris just had a march the other day. He had 10,000 people walk past my house. We walk past our house and everything that serves my community is destroyed. Walgreens, Mariano's, uh, hardware stores, all the little mom and pop stuff destroyed. And you can easily say, okay, you know what? Why did, why did they do that to their own stuff? And why did they do it? You know, I think that's being very insensitive. And I say that only because if you slap me in my face one time and I say, okay, now look, I don't know what happened, what caused you to slap me in my face, but look, don't slap me no more. And you slip up and you slap me again. And I holler off and slap you back. I am responding to how you are treating me. I tried talking to you already. I tried trying to have a civil conversation with you already, and you're not listening. Now I have to respond to you in the terms and in the matter that you have been treating me. So is it fair? Is it just biblically? No, we know it isn't. But the reality is, is how much you think one man going to take before he snaps. What we are witnessing in our neighborhoods is not just social. It's not just financial. It's mental, too. When people are mentally oppressed, man, when people are uh, distressed, when people feel like there's no hope, man, they do what they feel they need to do to survive. And it's horrible. It is. Is it horrible? It's horrible, man. It is horrible to see. I took pictures because this is historic. The moment that we in right, we are in right now is historic. But guess what? If God so allows me to see it 10 years from now, we shouldn't be here. We should not be in the same place. And I'm fighting for those who will come behind me. For those who the Bible says that a wise man lays up an inheritance for his children's children. That's where that's where we need to be. That's where the focus needs to be. But that doesn't happen. If, if you don't ever feed our neighborhoods, when you're building the programs and the systems that you take over to the nice places and you never do it here where we are. When you don't do it, I have a 19 year old son who I'm trying to explain this to who's at a predominantly white school on a scholarship playing basketball. And who's saying, Dad, none of my, play, my teammates or my coach has said anything about this. So guess how he feels? I want to transfer. I want to go. Maybe I need to go to an HBCU. Maybe I need to go somewhere where <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I need to go somewhere where people are empathetic. They're sympathetic to what's going on, to what's happening. And you know what? Sometimes it, like Sherry said, sometimes it, all it takes is, you know what? I cannot imagine what you're going through. I am so sorry. 
I am so sorry. I, you know what? I am so, I empathize with you. What can we do? What, would, what can we do to assist? My, my son asked me, he said, Dad, why are they so afraid of us? You know, I couldn't find the words to say. Because part of me wanted to say, well, because we look different. But then it was like, nope, because we talented. Oh, nope. Uh, man, why? Why aren't, why? Why? Honestly, why? The question, the question is, why? Because when I'm sure, I'm sure George, you know, he looked like he was a pretty buff young man. He looked pretty tall and pretty buff. And so his friend said he walked low on purpose because he knew sometimes he was towering over people. And so he never wanted people to be intimidated by his continence. So what in the world, what would cause you to think, man, is it? I, I think, I think that, you know, it's, I want to speak to something you said earlier about the, what, what you saw in terms of the, of the destruction there. I mean, and so tell you guys from Chicago, and I'm sure you're familiar with the great fire, right? In 1871. Yes, sir. That's what happened at the, fire, the Great Fire of 1871. They rebuilt it. Rebuilt. You're right. Because when it comes to economics in America, they're going to rebuild. So like you, you're like, is that the way I would, you know, protest? No, I wouldn't. But am I spending my time critiquing that? No, I am not. Right? Because what is an appropriate response for killing me? Hmm. What is an appropriate response for putting your knee on somebody's neck for almost nine minutes on camera in broad daylight in the middle of the street. What's appropriate? What should what should be my response? Right? And not just for him, but what should be appropriate for Ahmaud Arbery and Trayvon Martin and Philando Castile and Eric Garner and Sean Reed and Ahmad uh, Amadou Diallo. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on with these names. What is appropriate for that? And these are the people that we actually know about because it was filmed or some of, in some other way it was caught. But we don't know, like, we understand what happened, you know, to Emmett Till because his mom told the story and she made a statement by letting his body be visible. But we don't really know. What, can you imagine if we had video footage of what they did to that 14 year old boy? Can you imagine how many other black bodies have been murdered or massacred or beaten that we have, don't even know about? We have no recollection of. So as a collective group of people, it's, I mean, it's an understatement. It's, 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 I mean, the words, there are not words to really convey, I think, the, the, the level of tired and exhaustion that we have. And I think that when people say things like, you know, I don't know what you're feeling, which is true again, I'm gonna go back to what I said before. We'll do the work to find out, hmm. right? We didn't construct racism. We don't benefit from we don't benefit from it. So you do the work. I made this analogy before. I was talking to a, a guy who lived in my building, the white guy in my, my last building, who said he didn't really understand what I meant or what people meant when they talked about white privilege, right? So I said, well, when I asked you to meet me at this restaurant, did you wonder how you were going to get in the building? And he said, no. I said, but if you were in a wheelchair and you had never been here before. Do you think you may give some thought to how you're going to get in this building? Probably so. Well, there was a point in time in this country where 
people were building buildings without the consideration of people who were in wheelchairs. Mm. So who made the noise? The people in the wheelchairs complained, right? To people who were writing building codes. The people who were writing building codes were not people in wheelchairs. They were people who could walk. And they said, you have to create access for us. So what black people are saying is we don't, we're not asking for a special privilege. We're asking for access to the same thing you have access to. But the catch is we're not, we're not the ones who built this system and we don't need to be the one. We're not the ones who are, should be tasked with deconstructing it. That should be on you. And so I say that to every white person who is allied, everyone who's listening, everyone who's concerned, everyone who says, how can we fix it? And I think to, to speak to what uh, Chad said earlier, I do think that when we're talking about coming together, um, people who, who are concerned about these issues, that we have to, to focus and have like, what, what is the, the purpose of our gathering? Um, and then what are we intending to accomplish from it? Because the first thing you have to do with anything is you have to understand what the problem is. What are we having a conversation about? Right. This is not just about George Floyd or any of the other hundreds of names that we can name. This is about systemic institutionalized racism. Amen. This is about the systems in this country that in that perpetually disadvantage black people. This is not a narrative that Asian people have. It's not a narrative that Latinx people have. Indigenous people don't have it. No other people group in this country has this story, hmm. right? And I think we have to really be focused on that because even when we say people of color, we have to be careful about what, what, what we're saying, right? Because even that's not equitable. No other group was enslaved for 250 plus years. There wasn't water fountains in the South that said white and brown, they said white and black. That's what they said. And so we have been, targeted we have been uh just really like 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 sought after in a way to continue this kind of of, 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 of oppression and i think that we have to really again have an honest exchange about this but if we're going to have these conversations and i think we should have them i think they would be helpful to have we have to first start with that piece what is the problem right we always talk about the fruit but we do not talk about the root so you can talk about like these, you know, these manifestations in terms of who's getting killed, but the question is why? Why are they getting killed? And why are, they, why are the officers going home? I, I, I'm, I'm working on something and I, not to get into the details, but like I had to look, I had to get 50 names, look at 50 names of people who've been killed by police or white vigilantes. And I wanted to put them in chronological order. So I literally had to go through 50 stories of black people being killed by the police. And on at least three occasions, I was like almost broke down because almost every single time the police were not held accountable. Either a mistrial, a hung jury, the DA just dismisses the charge, they're fired, there's a civil suit, but nobody's held accountable. And so that is what that is the, 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 the thing that we're screaming for right now is accountability. And you only do that when you feel like people have, to Percy's point, equal human value, right? If you see us still in some way as three-fifths human, as we were defined at one point in this country, then you don't feel like, you know, it's not that big of a deal to you to see somebody murdered on the street over and over and over again. And what happens when that, every time that happens, what is the first thing that they do? <laughs> the first thing that they do is demonize the person. 
That's it. What were they doing? What was their criminal record? Were they yeah. on drugs? Were they drinking? Like that has anything to do with what just happened. It's completely yeah. irrelevant. And so uh, we have to stop doing that to, to black people. We have to stop letting that narrative be constructed that, that because what it does, is, what it attempts to do is it attempts to legitimize the murder. Yes, it does. Absolutely. It does. Right. Uh, also, for, for instance, like today, there was one autopsy that came out that said, well, he had some underlying conditions. That's it. And then the second autopsy that was requested and performed by the family, he died of asphyxiation, okay? And today we find out, why do we need to know that he tested for COVID-19? So we can change the narrative. That's the point. We can change the narrative and shift the blame because there has a, there's a charge now for all four. So now we can say, oh, well, if it's COVID-19, then maybe he didn't die from, that, from the knee on the neck. No, he did. He died because somebody had the knee in, his, in their neck and on his back. And other people were standing by watching and letting it happen. COVID-19, it had nothing to do with that. But the point to mention it now, the day of the man's funeral, is to change the narrative. Yes, you're so right. And we have to control that narrative. We cannot allow the narrative to change. We cannot allow it to shift. We need to stick with what we know. Anybody with the heart, anybody with the heart can watch that video and see and say, my God, yep. how is it somebody could do that? To somebody, With no man voice. crying out for his 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 mom who has transitioned. His mom ain't even alive, but I can only imagine what that was like. And so, I I, I agree with Tim in that. You know, what are we gonna do? What what will we what do we do from here? And I think I think the responsibility upon us, those of us who are here, and those upon uh, those of us who who are, are vexed and who are fed up and who are tired is to put pressure on the people who sit in the seats, who are making decisions about yeah. where money is going, uh, where the money is spent, uh, how the money is spent. Um, this is bigger than, um, it's bigger than, it's, it, this hit different than all the rest for some reason. I, I don't know why, but this hit different. It really hit different. And I have to be honest, when I peeked outside my door to see the march in front of my house, I would dare to say that it may have been more white people marching than black people. And so I'm saying it to say that I think this is the first time I've ever seen people on both sides say, okay, you know what? This was bad. This was, this was really, really bad. I don't think it excuses, but I think it's the first time that we finally see them say, hey, you know what? I, I hurt with you. I, I hurt with you. I, I'm, you know, I'm hurting with you. This is this was bad. This was bad. And so I agree. I, I'm I'm on here tonight because not only I'm on because Marky's my friend, but I'm on because I would like to see 
us find a way to, you know, to move forward. And moving forward does not mean forgetting. You know, you can't forget. Right. You know, I don't think it's that. I think it's it's how do we how do we take the anger? How do we take the 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 anguish? And and let me just let me tip the scale real quick and just say this. When somebody has a mental issue, they're taking in they go see a psych and they are giving a test and the test reveals what this person's basically where they are. Right. And so I think I honestly believe that when you, when that part of us has not been addressed, you're going to get an imbalance somewhere. There's going to be an imbalance. And so, although I don't believe in a life for a life. Um, you have to be honest and sit here and say, uh, I, I asked myself the what would Jesus do question. You know, what would Jesus do if he were here and this happened in front of him? What would he do? And I asked myself that because I think it's the only way to keep me from doing what my emotions want me to do. You know, it's the and, and this is just me being honest. Um, I'm not a violent person, but there was a rage inside of me. There was a rage that 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 I had never experienced before. After seeing this, after after seeing this transpire and the arrogance, um, the arrogance, the privilege. It, it it just it it built it was a rage, and so I had to go walk. I just I just went walking. I just went walking. I didn't want to be with nobody. I didn't want to talk to nobody, you know. And everybody was like, "Hey, man, you okay? You okay?" I didn't even answer, cause no, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And so, as a creative, what I do, I did what we normally do as creatives. I started writing. I started writing about what I was feeling, why I was feeling that way. Although we don't need a song, we do need honesty. We do need honesty. Nick, this is a uh, this is good stuff. I'm I want to kind of transition into a piece before we start talking about, you know, just music, um, um, in our in our churches. But somebody texted me and asked me to bring this up. I think uh, the importance of being registered to vote and vote in your local and national elections. Yes. Uh, we have to use our our power, and one of the ways that we we can speak is by voting. And and that person that says, "Well, my vote doesn't mean anything." You know, I think that that is that is a tragedy, and I think that we have dismissed um, this particular fight. I'm grateful that um, my church, you know, throughout the course of the year, we're registering people to vote on site. Um, that you can vote 
and uh, register to vote and actually take the time to, to vote in your local elections because who you have as your mayor, who you have, have as your governor, who you have as your state senator, your, 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 your representative is so important. And I think that we just dismiss these things and to say, well, I, I don't need to vote. Yes, we do. I think voting is extremely important and we may not like everything about the candidates, but um, we have to, you know, use that power that we have. Um, and um, your lack of voting says, or, or, or just not voting at all, says something that you really don't care what happened when these are the people that are making decisions as to um, what is gonna happen in our city, state, and on a national level. Can I, can I say something about that? Yeah. The, the, the voting situation I think is super important. Um, I, have a, I have a bit of a different opinion. Of, I, don't, I don't know that I think people don't care. I think people don't understand because we are not educated on the processes of voting and government um, it's not something we talk about in our school. It's not a dinner table conversation. We don't talk about it at our churches. Um, and so I think a lot of people don't really understand. I told a friend of mine today, like, let me make this, try to present it in a way that you can get it. So we all know George Floyd was murdered on camera. We saw that. The first person who came out to speak up against, speak out against that in a position of power was the mayor of Minneapolis, right? Who is an elected official. The next thing that was, so after the mayor came out and spoke, the guy was fired by the police. The next thing that happened was we're waiting for charges. Well, who brings charges? The district attorney brings charges. District attorney is an elected official. If these people go to trial and are convicted, they will be sentenced. Who sentences them? A judge. In many counties and municipalities, a judge is an elected official. And so we have to, I think we have to break it down for people to understand that when you mad because the police got off because they didn't bring charges, well, did you vote for the DA? Right? Because that's, that help, helps people to really connect the dots. And so people think about the president and all that stuff. I'm not saying that's not important, but Tip O'Neill, who is, was back in the day, Speaker of the House said, all politics is local. So if I'm stopped in Atlanta, um, the way that I'm policed in this city is a direct result of the policies in this particular city, right? Not, it doesn't matter who the president is if I'm stopped by a local police department. So we have to help people to understand the importance of that. In, in our city, um, the mayor decriminalized weed. She can't make it legal, but she decriminalized it. What does that mean? If you get caught with less than an ounce, they write you a ticket as opposed to taking you to jail. She did away with cash bail, right? Because we know that when people are locked up, if they give you, give you a bail, you got to pay the bail. Well, if you're poor and don't have money, you just stay in jail until your court date, which could be a week or two months or three months, which could lead to you losing your job, losing your house, um, getting in more trouble, like all these other things. So now if you have a nonviolent infraction in Atlanta, then you don't have to pay money to get out of jail. So again, we have to start to understand the way these systems work and how they have been used against us so we can get inside these systems and start to make sure that certain choices are made. Keith Ellison is now the AG in Minnesota who's taken over this case. That's why you see things changing because he's somebody that is 
um, uh, appointed by the governor, governor's an elected official, right? <laughs> to help to, to shape this thing. So I think that as it relates to voting, whoever asked that question, it is very, 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 very important for us to do it. It is overwhelming. Like I looked at the, the ballot for next Tuesday in Atlanta and it's like, it may be 30 things on there to vote for, 30 different people, but it's important. So we have to take the time to do the work, to understand who's running and understand what makes the most sense for us. The DA in Atlanta, I was like, didn't love him, right? What did he, he knows the election is coming up next week and he knows people are paying attention. So what did he do in my opinion, when the six officers um, pulled the young man and the young woman out of the car and tased them here in Atlanta, the, the Morehouse and Clark, uh, Morehouse and Spelman students, they were fired and then the DA brought charges immediately. Even the chief of police and the mayor said they didn't know he was gonna bring charges. He called her and said, I'm bringing charges. So what did that mean? That means he wanted to show up in the community and say, yo, I'm gonna bring justice. Was that dude that helped people pay attention to him and hopefully in his mind, help him get reelected. So we have to you know, talk to our people uh, about these things. And again, try the best way we can using the simplest language to help our people understand right, how important it is to vote. And then once we vote people in, it's our responsibility to then hold those people accountable. Part of the challenge, and I get in a lot of trouble for this, well, I'm not gonna call names on the lie, but we, 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 we have, we do a good job fussing at people and chastising people for not voting, right? We're very critical. But again, we never ask people, why aren't you voting, right? And so, part of this is this is my supposition when you look at people who were in the projects under reagan under bush under clinton under bush under obama like obama was in the projects grandma was in the projects great grandmother like when they see this we have this perpetual kind of poverty and they've gone to vote and nothing changed in their life in a measurable tangible way then they're like that stuff don't work and we have to convince them that you can't just vote once, you have to keep doing it, right? We have to keep, stay in the fight. We can't give up. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. But I think we'd be much more, uh, we'd, be, we'd be benefited much more if we were really to, if we really tried to understand what people are feeling and the angst that they have and why they're not showing up as opposed to just fussing at them. And I tell all my, you know, most, a lot of my friends do well for themselves, right? which is a whole other conversation I won't go into now about classism, which is another thing that makes some people quiet on, on issues of racism, black people included, right? Because when you get a certain level of money and access and you know whatever, then you don't want to make too much noise, right? Which is why all the black people in the NFL didn't align when Colin Kaepernick lost his job. If they had done that, he would have his job today. If all of them had said, we ain't playing till he gets a job, he would be playing today. That's another conversation. But when, we, when we're talking about how we have these conversations and how we get people to vote and how we get people to show up, we have to talk about, again, the ways that they're gonna be affected directly. Like what is gonna happen in your particular community? Flint has dirty water, right? That is a directly connected to a political decision that has or has not happened. Even Marky talked about like these other, other kinds of injustices that we deal with. And one of the things we don't talk about a lot is environmental injustice. Why do black people have higher rates of asthma? Why do we have higher rates of hypertension? Why do we have higher rates of 
high cholesterol, like a lot of these things like dirty air, not clean, having clean water, all of these things that are happening in our communities adversely affect us. I'm gonna say this and shut up. There's a, there a study that I read a few months ago that said black people live in hotter neighborhoods, right? That is not a colloquialism. A measurably in terms of temperature, the, the neighborhoods that we live in are hotter. Why are they hotter? Because we live in more urban centers where there's more concrete and asphalt and fewer trees. So we are literally, and they were, and the studies show that that has an effect on our health. So the whole COVID thing, it's like when people were saying like, you know, we have all these issues and underlying conditions. Again, nobody's saying, why? Why are we more sick? Why are we sicker than other people? We're not genetically predisposed to being ill or sicker than other group people groups, but we are because there are a lot of things happening at play and racism is pervasive in America. It affects us on every level. It affects us in every field. And it doesn't matter what social economic level you are at, it has an effect, of, an effect on you. And so I think that we have to, again, time is back to voting. We have to have these conversations to help people connect the dots, so they understand that we all have to participate in this process so we can get people in positions of power and influence that can really put our needs where they need to be, and we can have real, meaning, measurable change after this protest stop. I'm done. So, so I, I wanted to kind of shift to um, music um, in in the in the church, um, more so the black church. Um, Chad Tyrone Stoner just hold tight, uh, but I know you understand our culture. You're always involved in what we're doing. Um, recently, we were um, shown a picture of some of our Christian contemporary artists, uh, brothers and sisters um, in the White House with our current president as a sign of solidarity as they stood with him and took this picture. Um, and there were some people of African-American, um, of the African diaspora. Um, what, why is it that we are abandoning who we are, um, to, to not align ourselves in unity? Because I do think we do need to be unified but we are abandoning our sound for someone else else's sound. Um, Sherry, you're the queen of the bunch. Talk about it. You know, I, I think that it really has a lot to do with not understanding and knowing our value, you know? Um, I. We, we have a, black people are magical. We just, I do not apologize for that. It just simply is. Um, but we, when we see a shiny object that seems to be working well, we have a tendency to move away from what is and decide that it's not as, vibrant as it used to be. And this is what everybody else is doing trend wise. 
and it's, it's a sense of abandonment. Uh, for instance, you know, in the 80s, I grew up, I was born in 74, but the music that's most prominent for me is Walter Hawkins, um, the Thompson Community Singers, the Clark Sisters, the Kojic, I grew up there. So <laughs> knowing that music and the Winans, knowing that music, listening to that music, all of those choir music, Charles, Charles Hayes, Dr. Charles Hayes. Um, and there was a shift between the 80s, the 90s, 90s was a choir era as well. You had John P. Key in New Life, um, Elena Drape and the Associates, um, Donald Lawrence and the Tri-City Singers, which I currently sing with. Um, and then we moved from the, the, the mid 90s to the 2000s. And there's a wave of Christian contemporary and we've just decided that it's the shinier object. So in that transition, we have in our industry done away with entire segments of gospel music. Can't hear them anymore on radio because we've decided that the shinier object is better. My challenge is there's no decision being made for what we're doing in reverse. So to me, and this, this may be a stretch, but I believe that there is underlying racism in that as well. Um, because no matter what it sounds like or how shiny it looks, you can say all day long, well, we're saying the same God and you know, we're saying to no, it, the music feels different and the opportunities are vast. There's a vast difference between the opportunities from one to the other. And I think that what many in our community has decided that because there's such a vast difference that we should shift to that to expand the opportunities for us. That's just my personal opinion. I could be wrong. I'm willing to be. But it just feels like the shift happened because it felt like the shinier new toy and the opportunities for vast mass exposure were broader on that side of the world. So what we need to do is incorporate that. But in doing so, we've simply abandoned who we, we, we were. Thankfully, I think we're easing our way back. But I think we have been abandoned a lot of who we are because we've decided it's, 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 the, it's the broader opportunity for us than we could have gotten here. Mm. Um, I, I'm gonna say this and then I, I wanna hear from uh, Justin real quick. Um, one of the arguments I hear is that um, Christian contemporary is, you know, the sound of true worship um, from from some of my colleagues and their um, their music, you know, speak about you know God and you know it's more biblical. Um, I think the truth about the black church is that we wrote from our experiences. Yes. Um, and I think you have to continue to write 
from your experiences? Because even if I do a Christian contemporary song here at the Salem Church in Omaha, Nebraska, I can't do it in the context in which I I, I heard <laughs> because my church cannot relate to that particular yeah. sound. So sometimes people will say, what was the name of the song y'all did on Sunday? And so I used to just say, oh, that was by this particular artist. And then they would come back the next week or a couple weeks later, they'd say, well, it don't sound like that. When I, I, and so I would have to just tell them. So now I say, well, it's by this artist, but just know it's not gonna sound like you heard it today. Yeah. You know, because we have to do it in the context in which our people can relate to it uh, does not distinguish or or extinguish the fact that it, it is a song of worship, but just understand that we all some sometimes people don't have that ear to be able to connect to a different sound. So um, go ahead, Justin. Come on, let me, let me hear from you, buddy. Um, so I was thrown into the fire when I was like. 13, 14 at my church. And, you know, I appreciate my former pastor now, you know, more than ever is teaching because I used to fight him tooth and nail. Like, why can't we sing that? You know, everybody's singing this. This is this is a song that is really like taking over the world. Why can't we sing this? And, you know, he's like, you know, you have to look at who you're ministering to. Yes, you have your cousins who are your age. And yes, we have a few young adults, but look at the vast majority of the whole congregation everybody in here is 30 or 40 years older than you and they can't get with that and he's like and it's not that we're necessarily trying to cater to them but he's like in a way now I see that he didn't want me to forget that that is you know the stock where I come from you know singing you know hymns and singing like my church I was coming up, you know, we used to do versions and I say versions lightly. We used to do versions of like Andre Crouch songs or whatever. And I would hear this stuff. And I'm like, what? You know, and I, you know, I was, I was like, well, why can't we do this, 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 and this? But, you know, now on the other side of that, man, I really am so appreciative. And so, you know, Pleasant Green now to this day, like we'll do some CCM. Um, but like you said, Mark, it sounds different. Um, because, you know, it has to be something that, you know, we can latch on to because again, you know, what, what we sing and what they sing and the places from which we sing those words, you know, we have to make sure that everybody gets, you know, something out of the experience. And I feel like, you know, there are still a lot of churches who have, you know, people from the baby boomer era, era you know, that, that generation that, you know, can't, they, they still can't relate to the new stuff. Like, you know, so um, I, as a young, as a youngest cat on this call, you know, I, I'm appreciative of, of the upbringing and, you know, my pastor not letting me forget, like, you know, this is, this is who you are and this is who we are as, you know, a black church. So um, that's kind of, that's, you know, that's my thoughts on that. Pastor Trini. Um, I, well, I want to say here at Arad, like everybody, my, my approach to music ministry, I like I like to eat. So I approach it from uh, everybody has to, is it being invited to the banquet. And if I'm hosting, hosting you over for dinner, I'm going to make sure that everyone that comes to dinner has something to eat. Um, if you don't eat chicken, there will be fish. If you don't eat fish, there may be some beef. 
Uh, if you don't eat uh, rice, there'll be vegetables, there'll be salads. I'm going to make sure that your, your the total experience musically um, is catered to make sure that you're able to leave and say, I'm full. Um, and a lot, I think what's happened with our our churches, we do CCM, we do traditional, we do hymns, we do anthems, we do everything. We do old, we do, uh, I'm a choir kid, so Tommy's, Whitfield, whatever. Um, we do we do all of it. And then we make the CCM, I tell them we gotta put, we have to put some fat back in these greens because we cannot eat these. Our churches, like you said, Marky, is not gonna be able to translate it. So I have to add something to it. The band has to spruce it up some so they can carry and go. Um, I think the thing that disturbs me with with our church is that we've we've we started demonizing our our music. Um, we sing too hard, um, and nobody got time to be squalling like that. But now these kids don't have any stamina when I'm trying to get them sopranos to reach E flat and stay because you've been whispering, and I'm tired of you whispering. I need I need your chest. Come here, church. And so um, and I don't you know I think I think each in a symphony. Nobody oh, just the whisper took me out of here. <laughs> the, the, the symphony, the symphony is all these instruments, you know, the orchestra. I don't want to go to the orchestra and just hear flutes. I want to hear the trumpets. I want to hear the bassoons. I want to hear the trombones. I want to hear the violas, the violins. I want to hear every part. I want to hear the timpani. I want to hear the drums. I want to hear the classical pianos. I want to hear every piece because each piece makes that orchestra amazing. And we started believing that our piece of the orchestra is no longer good enough. But all over the world, people are mimicking what we're doing. And we're the only ones in the United States of America saying that gospel music ain't really all that. There's no power in it. That's a lie. I can pull up Ted and Sherry right now. I can pull up uh, Percy's music right now. I can pull up Marky's music right now. And the power of God is still on it. And, 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 and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, help me, Holy Ghost. Uh, it pierces just like oceans would. We can go back and I just did tonight with my worship team. That's why I was late. And so I apologize to the panel. I had to work my worship team over Zoom tonight. And the latency issues was wearing me out. Pray my joy and my strength. But we got to be ready for worship. And we did. Surely he's able by the um the, the ward singers. We went back and got Charlotte, Charlotte. And one of the singers said, where did you get this song? I said, it's in your heritage. Go back and read. That's the ward singers. They remade it over and over again. But young people, you can't be up here talking about what is it? Every piece that we are matters. You can't build a house and move the move the foundation that foundation is important if you don't have it you won't know it and yes we can incorporate our ccm because that's kingdom but we can't forget who we are trying to embrace what's popular because embracing what's popular will make you miss out on what god has for you and you alone there's a sound that comes from our people there's a sound that comes from our hearts that god made our vocal cords a certain way so because of what he called us to do we're hard we're energetic we're we we're the way we approach worship the way they said you got so much soul because everything we've been through that stuff is 
that's been passed down through genealogy. You have aunts and uncles that were saying, sing it from your heart, sing, go, go, and you growling and squalling until you and blood vessels popping, but then the power, and then, you know, relationship and everything. All this matters and it's important. And if I could just say my final statement is quit saying what God gave us isn't good enough. You gave away jazz and said, oh no, that's just a, da, da, da. and you gave away, you know, now, now, you know, we almost go on the pop and saying hip hop and all the rest of it ain't good. But it's stuff that God, literally you telling God the gift that he dropped in for your culture isn't no longer valuable. I don't, I don't, that for me is no longer acceptable. So as for me and my church, you know, where I serve and any church that brings me to do anything, we're going to do it all. And we are first going to do what we what was what was given to us from God as a gift? Because to put it in the ground and say, "Well, they didn't want," it's the parable that taught us to put it in the ground where everybody else was, um, you know, doing this and doing that. And I just, you know, God, I didn't know if my if our little our little uh, Jesus will fix it after a while. It's going to work in this service. So I just put it up and buried. It. And God said, "But I gave you Jesus will fix it after a while because the way you can you can translate, you can minister. Jesus will fix it after a while because lives are waiting on what you have. I don't need another Chris Tomlin." He's doing it on his own. He's doing a wonderful job. We don't need you to be. I don't need you to be another. Uh, what's the young lady at Bethel? She's amazing. I don't need you to be her. I uh, need to hear what God has put in you and be okay with it. Quit trying to fit some mold. We, I think Sherry said it. We're magical. Be magical. Create something. Become something. I'm done. Okay, I'm done. Okay. I got, I got to say this, and, and then I'm going to have Percy and then Jerron say something. So I just feel like I was born at the right time. I was born in 1974. I got birthday coming up next Sunday. Okay. I'll be 46. So I feel like I was born at the right time because I was able to get a balance uh, of it all. Yeah. So uh, just a few, maybe a week ago, there was a concert that Cosmopolitan Church of Prayer in Chicago aired from 1985 that featured uh the Cosmopolitan, uh, the Warriors, we call them the Warriors in Chicago, um, Father Hayes and, and, and the Warriors, and it featured uh, Reverend Milton Bronson and the Thompson Community Singers, and it featured the late uh, Thomas Whitfield. Uh, that's what crafted my sound. Them, uh, the Hawkins, Andre Crouch, you know, uh, um, L.A. Mass, um, the, you know, uh, just so many different, different, artists and I refuse to abandon the sound that cultivated my sound. Yeah. I'm sorry. Who I am as a songwriter uh, um, and and is is because of what I heard as, as a child. Yep. It's because of what I heard at the Chicago Gospel Fest, you yep. know, in June, because of what I heard on the radio when there was when there was 18 gospel stations in your local city, you know, <laughs> when 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 the Tommies had third Sunday musicals third Sunday. every month, <laughs> you know that, and you know people say you always talk about the Tommy. You are absolutely right, that's right, because that's what made me want to be who I am today. Yep, devil be damned. That's exactly that's who made me what I wanted to be, and so and so um, I. I'm, I'm going to always pick the ear of Percy Beatty. I'm going to yeah. always try and talk to those ones who I feel like um, are, 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 are trendsetters. 
Yeah. Uh, we talk about gospel music and we talk about how gospel choirs have faded out of the, the, the scene in the church. We've gone with the worship team and, and I love my worship team, but everybody on my worship team sings in my choir. So when you get done singing, you're not getting going to sit down in the audience and have your own little second note. Hell to the no. You're going right up in that choir stand <laughs> like everybody else. Come on, man of God. You know what I'm saying? All so, right. All right. right. <laughs> Hold on. Let me check and see if I got bail money. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just saying, overseas, over in Europe, there's an outbreak of gospel music, choirs. You know, Donald Lawrence is getting ready to, before COVID, we were all going over to Copenhagen and, and to be a part of that, I had my flight and hotel, all of that was ready to go because there's such an outbreak of it. I've done workshops overseas that people, there's a passion for gospel music, for choirs that does not exist, that, that is solely fading back in, that we abandoned it because we thought this was oh so great and all of this. And, um, I, I, so the, to me, my favorite songwriter, you know, um, is on the line. So Percy, I just want to hear from you then. And, <laughs> and then Jerron, who I think is a great up and coming writer. I, I, I want to hear from you too. Uh, go ahead, Percy. Well, I think, um, uh, I'll, I'll go back to what uh, Sherry said earlier. I think one of the reasons why, uh, black churches have embraced, um, a culture that does not necessarily represent who they are. It's because we all want to be accepted. So we forsake our identity for acceptance. And the horrible thing about that is that you do that. And the minute you go where they are to present what they do, they don't accept you. And you wonder why. And it's because you abandoned who you were. And the reality is, is I appreciate all forms of music. You know, I, I, I get it. I, I, I love CCM. I, I love, I love the theology of CCM. I love the theology of CCM. I love the depth of CCM, but I have to be honest. A lot of what you hear lyrically is not my experience. It is not my experience. So, and so for me, I may have to shift it a bit in order to introduce it to my audience, or introduce it to my, I may have to shift it a bit to make it work, but it's because I want to make sure I connect with, I know the people who God have, has assigned me to. And when you know that God has assigned you to a people what you understand is that you have to trust the gift that he's given. If he's given you a gift, then trust what he's given. And if, if you haven't been accepted yet, maybe you're in the wrong place. And see, a lot of us don't understand that acceptance is not really, uh, I, don't, I don't know if acceptance is really what we need, what we want. I think what we want is we want to know that what we're doing, what we are doing has value. That it means something to the listener. That when they hear it, they can hear it and respond to accordingly to what they hear. And quite honestly, it doesn't happen when you're singing somebody else's song. You know, you got to sing your own song. You know, 
you have to sing your own song. And this is not to, I don't want to sound divisive because that's not what I'm saying. Because until we learn to come together, black and white, we won't create the song of the, the real song of the Lord. We won't create that until we come together. Because that sound is yet to be heard in the earth. Because and, and when we talk about multicultural, multicultural is not black and white. That's not multicultural. You know, we say that, but that's not what it is. And so I think we have to honestly commit to what it is that God has given us, the gift that we have inside of us, trust the gift that he has inside of us, be consistent with presenting what it is that God has inside of us, and the audience will find you. You're right. There's a surge, in, there's a surge overseas in gospel music. People love, you cannot leave. If you go overseas to sing, you cannot leave overseas without singing, oh, happy day. You better sing Oh Happy Day or it's going to be a, a brawl. <laughs> it's going to be a brawl. They want to hear Oh Happy Day. But that is the experience. There's something about that song. There's something about that song when it's delivered, the experience of that, that resonates with them. And when something resonates with somebody, that's what they want to hear. I remember teaching a songwriting class one time and there was a lady in my class. She was 72 years old. And she said to me, she said, does it, does, it, does it matter that, you know, God saved me. And when I came to church, I wanted to hear, I kind of wanted to hear something what I used to hear when I was out in the Jigaboo, out in the, out, you know, out, out in the world. And, and what I immediately translated and understand that to mean is, is that the church has to become, much, much like my brother here said, Trini said, was that the church has to learn to cook for the whole house. We have to learn how to cook. You cannot cook a exclusive meal because that meal means you only feed one group of people. So you have to learn how to cook for the whole house. And it's okay. It's okay that some may not say some may not agree. Some may not, some may not go with this, but the reality is at the end of the day, if you walk out of that place, knowing that you have met the need of everybody in there, that's all that matters. That person is going to tell somebody else who's going to tell somebody else. And that's how we word of mouth is how we built everything we've built. Man, they have great service. Ted and Sherry are incredible. They're, how do you know that they're incredible? I've experienced them. I can't speak about something I don't know. But that that I do know I can speak about. And so that's what happens. That's how we, you know, we hear music, we hear songs, we hear a great song. And I'll call Ted up and say, Ted, you heard such a so-and-so. Man, that's a great song. He says, Percy, I ain't heard it, but I'll take a listen. And he may text me later and say, hey, man, that's an incredible song. That's an amazing song. Word of mouth has also helped us to build our local ministries. But here we are not singing what we should be singing. And so you know what they're doing? They're going other places. They're going places where they can get what they need. And so we have to get back to being comfortable with the skin that we are in, being the people we have been called to be, and singing the song that God has given us to sing. I'm done. Can I say one thing? You know, I I, I don't I want to preface this by saying I'm never I'm not trying to be, you know, controversial or whatever. Yes, I, you I are. Not. Yes, you are. No, I'm, you are, I, I realize the things that I do say are. I'm not, so I played a video sometimes. This is what I feel like the undercurrent is. 
And I think this echoes what Percy and Trini are saying. We always assimilate to whiteness, historically, right? Because it is seen as more valuable in our society. And so when we move away from the songs that we created, Trini's point, I think it's so funny. I just had a conversation with an artist friend of mine the other night. So we look at it like everybody in here does music or is influenced by music or listens to it at least. So black people were the progenitors, the creators of ragtime, R and B, gospel, blues, hip hop, rap. Like the only thing I think rock, right? I think the only the only musical album like create really is maybe country music. And there's an argument about that coming from like hillbilly music, which is a different thing. And so when you think about all these expressions that have come out of our experiences, good or bad, um, it is interesting that CCM, which is not something that's, that is originated with us as, a, as an art form, we, it, it's not like, it, it'd be different if you platformed worship music, choirs, quartets, groups, yeah, all this, but it did. That's not how it happened. It replaced the other expressions. Yep. And that started with radio. Mm-hmm. That's where it, that began to shape the sound we were hearing in our churches and what people saw. So then you had you had artists who were doing more traditional sounding gospel music who couldn't get their music played. Yeah. Right? Couldn't get their songs added. So what they have to do? They start saying, "Well, I guess I got to do a worship song now because that's the only way I'm gonna get my song played." Yeah. And and the and the sound of radio changing was not done by somebody white. I won't call names, it was done by a black person for whatever reasons. And they got us to where we are now, like it's a whole thing. And so you have, then you start having conversations around CPM versus gospel as people were saying, well, the worship music is purer. It's more anointed. It's more reflective of God. I mean, all these things. And so then they start to be a demonization of gospel music, our own creation. Yeah. And so this kind of self-loathing thing that we do over time, I think needs to be confronted head on. We need to call it what it is. We need to speak directly to it. And we need to help people to understand that all the expressions that we have about God, whether again, it could be a worship song, I'm not demonizing worship music. I think it's fine, right? But but our experiences are different. I was in my car one night and I turned on the, the fish. I don't listen to the fish, but I was just, let me see what they're playing. There was a song on. It was like you made the mountains and the trees and rivers and the streams and you know it was this worship song. It was like cool. <laughs> Gospel stage. <laughs> and I was down to my last dime. <laughs> I burst out laughing in my car, and I was like, "That is so hilarious." <laughs> On a serious note, like I have never heard a white artist sing I was down to my last dime. In my whole, and I haven't heard every white artist, right? So let me be clear. But, and that's not a, they don't don't need to say that. What I'm saying is that we are singing about our experience. experience. You know what I'm saying? And that, and I think that what that does is it, is it gives us a way to, express God in our experiences. Yes. So we understand God as creator of mountains and streams and all that, but we also understand God to help us in times of need. 
We also understand God to be a healer and be a refuge and help us to keep our sanity when we couldn't afford to see a therapist. Yeah. To lose those things is to lose a part of ourselves and our ancestry and the people whose shoulders we stand on. Come on, man. I think that we have to be really careful about whitewashing, no pun intended, our music and our history. We can sing worship songs. It's totally fine. Again, I want to be very clear about that. But also, we cannot lose our own expressions. And those other forms are not more valuable than what we do. And and the other thing I want people to think about, we we always talk about reconciliation and coming together and being unified. I think that's important. Uh, to to a degree. I also think that uniqueness of culture and expression is fine. I yeah. don't be you. I don't. When I go to Peru, I don't want to have an American experience in Peru. I don't want to have yeah. an American experience when I go to France. I want something that's unique to that particular thing. It makes me appreciate other people's culture and their ideas and how they interpret things and how they sing and how they dress and what their ceremonies and their rituals are, right? And the, and the appreciation of their own history. So I think that you don't, you, you've not seen the tour with Mary J. Blige and Taylor Swift. You haven't seen it. Now, this may rub some people. So that's why I'm like, I don't, I don't need to see this. Toby Keith and Kirk Franklin on the tour. I don't. And they tried it and it didn't work. And I know because Kirk is a friend of mine and we talked about it. It did not work because the audiences are different and it's okay. That's the thing. We don't have to be the same. Whatever, it's totally fine. But Ted, but Ted, Ted, wouldn't you say though, if there had been some kind of, 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 uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word validation, but if there had been some type of, of, I don't know, some way that this, this, the, the Chris CCM artists had already embraced what it is what Kirk is doing or sanctioned or, or something of that nature, do you think it would have made a difference on a tour? And I say that simply because uh, most times, most times if an artist comes out and says, go get what's the name's record because it's incredible. They have an audience and they have influence. Their audience is going to go and listen to that record. And so... Like I saw a tour, and maybe you saw uh, uh, Marky and Percy. I'm sure you saw Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Chicago did a tour together. I went. I went. Yeah. I went to it when it came to Atlanta, and they they flopped like who was gonna open? Earth, Wind, and Fire opened the show, and that was great. Chicago came on. I knew maybe two of the songs, but I left. Mm-hmm. Got it. It wasn't. It wasn't something that I appreciated. I wasn't a fan. It wasn't music that catered that spoke to me. My point really is. Everything does not have to fit everybody. Got it. That's okay. It's totally fine. CCM artists have a sound that's authentic to them. I think they write based on their experiences. I think that they hear, you know, from God, the people who hear their music feel God in their music. And, and I'm not devaluing that. What I'm saying is that that's just not my experience as a creative. It's just not. And, it's, and I just think that we, we, I think that we, we're trying to do, we're trying to fix a problem with the wrong solution, right? The solution is equity and treat me as an equal human being. I don't need to be you. I only did it. We don't have to have the same music. We ain't got to have church together. We ain't got to do none of that because people have done those things and still not been reconciled. 
yeah. right? Just respect me and appreciate me and see me as an equal human being. And I will do the same for you. But I don't mean we gotta, we, we don't have to be homogenous. We don't have to be monolithic. We can have yeah. our own expressions and those can be valuable. And you know, then we cool. Like that's that's how I feel about it, right? Like I said, I'm I'm when I'm listening to gospel music, I want to hear the Tommies, I want to hear Whitfield, I want to hear whatever. I don't listen to Chris Tomlin. It's just not my thing. I'm not and Chris Tomlin is great and rich and popular. And it's and and there's value to what he does, but it's not my experience. Right. And that's what I want to hear. I want to hear things that are a reflection of what I'm going through, what I've lived through, and just the ways that I have imagined and reimagined God in my own life. I just, I just, I just, I want to echo, I mean, this really doesn't have, it's, it's a, just an observation. I just feel like, you know, I'm, the statement that I made that Black people are magical. Do you know how brilliant you have to be to not be able to read, but to give direction mm -hmm. in slavery times through a song and it be understood and embraced? There are messages that we can give because music in many ways can communicate things that just speaking won't. And we have a way of being able to do that. So why would we undervalue who we are when music has a way in, a, in, 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 in many spaces to behave as a Trojan horse? You can embed anything you want to in there and it can communicate better. I'll give you an example. My children are having problems grasping their timetables. Well, I made a melody for each one. And my son, who was in first grade, wasn't even on timetables yet, learned his timetable. Because he grabbed the song. So we have always had the ability to be able to do that. But for some reason, we hear because of the image, everything you see and everything that you believe starts with an image that you see. And every conversation produces a picture. So the things that we hear, we see, we have been taught subconsciously, well, it's not good enough. It's, it's, it's not gonna, gonna be as, as embraced or validated as what we see. When I promise you, the truth is, they reaching for you. They reaching for you. So be cool with being enough, because you are. My battery's about to die. <laughs> um, uh, I think Sherry said this earlier uh, about feeling validated, uh, you know, with the CCM crowd and their style. Uh, I remember I was uh, a friend of mine, uh, Malachi, had uh, left the church, it's a Methodist church. It was um, very uh, old school, white audience. And I took over as minister of music there, and they did all CCM music. And if you know me at all, I holler. You know, I I come from a Pentecostal <laughs> church where we gonna holler the devil out of you. I mean, and so I was trying to you get the song. Right hey, come on, somebody! <laughs> <laughs> but I'm but I'm sitting here in this church. I'm playing a grand piano which, you know, is something different as well. Uh, playing a grand piano, trying to sing soft. It's like trying to get Scooby-Doo to whisper. And it was a struggle every Sunday trying to do that. And, and then you start seeing, uh, you know, how your language start to, to change now. God wrap me in your arms. 
and, and hold me close. And I, I'm claustrophobic. I'm not trying to get wrapped up by anybody. And so it, it just, I, I just tried to be accepted by that style. And then you start hearing, well, you ain't got no oil if somebody don't fall out on their face it's not and cry and you put the towel over them. You know, you start hearing that stuff. And then I started to notice my writing style started to change because I was trying to fit in. It seemed like this was, was popular. This was the move. And I and I stopped being uh, who God has designed me to be in, in the tradition that gospel music had. I come from an old school uh, Kojic church. What am I doing trying to sing softly and, and lift my hands and come on and worship him? No, that it, it, that is the thing that I have really been uh, telling myself lately. You, you got, I got to get back to who I am, what a God has created me to be, and the gospel sound that uh, I grew up listening to. And I remember my mother said something on Sunday because you know the, the church I'm, the church I'm at. You put the beat uh, clip track on 145. You, you have a church, you know. And so we, uh, I remember had the click track going. They was bumping. They they shouting everything. And uh, my mom told me afterwards, she was like, you know, I really enjoy when you have the click track with the guitar going. She's like, because it reminds me of growing up. She was like, that was victory music when we grew up in church. You know, she grew up in the 50s and the 60s. So that style is something that, that she is used to. And so I don't want to abandon, you know, trying to be accepted and trying to change my style. And then this is what my mother's generation and, and, and other generations grew up. That was victory music. And so I, I seen a post, somebody said, turn them lights on. Hey man, we, you know, we got to, <laughs> all dark. We don't, we don't get to live in the dark. <laughs> you, <laughs> listen, we had church with us. All the lights were on, people were running around. I don't want to trip up and fall in the dark. Come on, somebody. So, <laughs> so I, I really, I, I, I can't, I'm out of that mindset now where I, I want to have that side. I'm sorry, Mark. You know, this is who I am. You know, no. it's still funny, you know we have we have a church in the dark. I can't see my hands. I don't know what's going on. I need the lights to come on so, we can, so I can really see where my feet are going. Come on. So I, I just, I really want to be in a state where I don't want to lose that. Mark, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to lose that because I'm trying to be accepted or I want my music or my writing to be accepted by a group of people who really don't care about me. We saw what we saw what happened to Kirk at the Double Wars. They were like, uh, we don't we don't care what you're talking about. Let's let's shut that off because we're not about that. So I want whatever my writing, whatever how I worship, I'm gonna continue to stick with the gospel sound that has been there. And you know, that's all I gotta say. I'm I can go on. That was good, John. That was good. That was good. That was real good. Good and funny. Scooby Doo, the whisper. Scooby Doo, that's Scooby Doo, yeah. I'm trying to tell you, I'm just struggling every Sunday. I need to holler. You hear me? No, I, I think that in some of those issues, where I struggle with is when people invite me to come and do something, but you bring me in after you've planned the event. So I feel like I'm just a token black on the stage. When my input does not have any weight with you all. And and that's a problem for me. And I, I'm most of the time, I'm an even kill guy. 
but I have to say that like right now I'm 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 the angry black man, you know, because now I'm just angry because I feel like people try to uh, diminish the value of of my gift of our sound as African American. Um, I think it's I think it was A. W. Tozer who who said that he believed that worship was the cure for racism, and I believe that. But I believe that it's not just attributed to a particular sound. I believe that, and and I think it was Percy said that the 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 United song hasn't been written yet. We haven't sung it yet, and I believe that once we can kind of get to that place of being united embracing one another, not just because it's popular but because we need to do it it's the right thing to do i don't need to see you crying in some united prayer service and you're like oh my god i'm just so sorry i just can't i just you know i, I don't want to hear all that i need you i need your actions and not your empathy and your and your verbal responses that are only temporary yep so I need, I need I need that thing to be to, to be present and I need it to be permanent. You know, I need your assistance uh uh 365 days a year. Because and I need to do the same for you on causes that you care about and not um demeaning who you are as a human being. And so I think that as as I re I refuse to be something other than what God created me to do. I'm not going to abandon because I don't I don't think um I don't think that we were meant to be other than what we were made to be. I don't think we he he made me black and he yeah. put the the sound in me. And I think that it's it's a wonderful sound. I love the sound of the black church. I love to hear that B3 holler. I love to hear you know that soloist, a Sherry Jones, say that again, and 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 bless us. I love to hear Karen Clark growl. Can't nobody growl like Karen. You know, nobody. There, there's a sound that is just unique. You know, we this this is the truth. We knew when James Cleveland came on the radio. We knew when it was a James Cleveland song. We knew when it was a Daryl Coley song. We knew when it was when it was an Andre Kraut song. We knew when it was the Tommies over Orlando Draper. We we because there was a, there was a sound that was associated, you know, and you knew the difference between the whiners and commission. There was just a sound. There, first of all, there's nobody like Marvin Winans ever. So, but there was just a sound that existed. And I don't think we can, we should be ashamed. Of that of that particular sound because I tell you something a story about Salem. Um, my my daughter uh, Nini and Linda's daughter Jasmine both went to college on the same weekend. Um, Shirley Terrell Jordan was on her uh, summer sabbatical, and so we had no we had no directors that weekend. And so I didn't call anybody in. I said, it's just one Sunday. I got approval from our shepherd. And I said, okay, this praise team is going to sing, but they're going to sing choir stuff. And he was like, okay. So we, when I got back, I had all kinds of emails in my inbox. And they were like, 
people were upset because there was no choir on Sunday. There was no choir in the choir loft. That's how important our worship experience, those elements are important yeah. to our worship experience here in Omaha, Nebraska. We're in a virtual uh, worship experience now. Most of us are in, in right now. Um, but the praise team is singing choir stuff. Mm -hmm. We're singing stuff that our congregation can relate to. I'm not flipping the sound because I want to blend in. I am okay with who I am. I'm more than okay. And I realize that what we bring is, is extremely valuable. Um, Chad, we close, we're going to let Chad say something in there. We've been holding people for about two and a half hours. So let's let let's let me hear from me. Uh, so uh, keep them there longer. <laughs> uh, you know, I was going to say, uh, there's a one of my mentors uh, told me once that um, uniformity is the killer of unity. Uniformity is the killer of unity because unity, by its nature, is that there are things that come together to make one. You know, university it's unity and diversity. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. So uniformity that everyone's kind of been, it, it's been a problem that has been robbing and giving away identity for the sake of uniformity. And that a call like this, the things that I trust God will come of this is moving toward real unity where diversity becomes um one voice, one kingdom voice in the case of what we're doing. And what a great privilege to just listen and learn during this time, which is, uh, we need to have a whole bunch of that happening. So I love all of you. Ted and Sherry, you wouldn't know this, but back in the day, Anthony Turner brought you to Omaha for, for the gospel explosion. And I was honking saxophone at that thing. So I, uh, Wow. I've I've known about Ted and Sherry for a while. So that was in the nineties. Yeah, that was in yeah, it was in the like nineties eight. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I love you both. I've been with you for a long time. So anyway, I'll I'll Mark, you want me to pray and then no, I want to say this real quick. Oh, yeah. Ted and Sherry, um, I remind them of this from time to time. Um their first record was originally supposed to be called Tithes and Offerings. Do y'all remember that? Oh yeah, when they, yeah, she did have that on the um, yeah the thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say? And God, we moved away from that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, before Chad takes us out in prayer, I just want to say thank you to you all. Thank um, you. If you all are, are outstanding people. Um, if you're not following um, Ted Wynn on Twitter or Instagram or any social media outlet, make sure you are. He is a voice rising up within um, our our movement. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love this guy to death because um, he is not ashamed to speak truth. Yeah. And so, um, 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 Percy Beatty is my favorite. He's my, my big brother and my favorite, my favorite songwriter. And, and I love him a, a great deal. And uh, stepped in and did something for me. He was here for me for Christmas. 
for our Christmas production and I got sick. And Percy, along with my staff, um, Linda and Al, and then Al got sick, um, Jake, and they, they all stepped up and handled their business for me. And I will never be grateful. I will ever be forever grateful and I won't ever forget it. And um, if Percy needs me, I, I will be there in a heartbeat. Um, and I, I love Trini, um, he's a great friend and brother and uh, such a true gift to the body of Christ. And um, he came here recently, beginning of the year, brought us into the new year. And I'm extremely grateful for our relationship. And Sherry is just such a dear friend. There's nobody like her. She's just so unique and, um, and she ain't no she ain't no sucker either. And <laughs> we found out we're cousins, so um, we we are. I'm grateful for that. Um, and so um, Ron and and Jetson, who I think are great up and coming artists, I'm grateful for your friendship. And um, Jetson got a book coming out real soon, and uh, that'll be coming out. Jerron just released the unplugged version of his song. Um, yes, I he did. Believe I bought it the uh, the other day, and uh, support him. Percy um, accepted his piece. One of our classes a few years ago at a work on a wheel, where they produced it in the class before the class. Him and Trent Phillips, and so extremely grateful. And Chad Stoner is um, such a great blessing. If if you meet Chad and you meet in Lane. They are just such a true blessing to Amen. the world. Amen. Always solid and always the same. And and Chad can play, you know. Yes, he can. He is, he is a true minstrel. And uh, when he picks that sax up, um, he has the ability to change the atmosphere and change lives. And so I'm very grateful for him. Um, he is a different pastor. We went to, Chad had me in South Dakota. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. I had you in very white South Dakota, too. I was, he said very white South Dakota. He was in an entirely white South Dakota. Hey, I only saw, out all right. Good. Hey, I only saw one black person, and that was at IHOP. Okay. Listen. Anytime you go to the mall and you go in Foot Locker and you don't see no black people, something's wrong. <laughs> so, Get out. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I, he had me down there twice for um, the fellowship that his church is up under. And I, I will be ever grateful. We taught a worship uh, clinic down there um, together. And then I was invited back for a, uh, a banquet um, for their fellowship. So, um, extremely grateful for our relationship. Um, he, he's always welcome here in in the doors of our church, and just we wrote we wrote a song together, and we're very yeah, right. We and so, um, just grateful. Um, <laughs> Percy, he did the song that we wrote at the Holland Center. He was the opening act for Boney James. Oh, so, yeah. Um, song is called oh, wow. "Further Further Still." Yeah, yeah. That oh, seems wow. like a that seems like a divinely. <laughs> Further like, still. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Further still. Yeah. At the check. So, um, Chad closes out the prayer. Thanks. Everybody. Yes. All right. God, you are beautiful. Your grace is more than we can handle. Your mercy is more than we deserve. And yet, God, you have poured yourself into us. 
so that we can walk in beauty and in confidence. We can walk in the identities that you've um, created in us and God, it's not over yet. My specific focus of prayer, I'm lifting up to you, God, this group of men and women who are representatives of so many, and yet they are each very distinct and gifted with voices that are that are powerful and necessary inside and out the church. And so, God, I trust that you will continue to move in their gifts, and those gifts will make room for possibilities in race and um, and change and kingdom impact. And God, I also lift them up so that they can. From this something about this call, something out this time of prayer will ignite in a fresh way in them the joy and um, gratitude for the lives you've given them to live and how the music that they've written and, and minister speaks to their lives, speaks to their testimonies, and that that is necessary, and that that is cherished, and that that is powerful. And that, God, you continue to grow that. Overwhelm us, God. Overwhelm us with what will come through the identities and, and audible testimonies of the men and women right here. God, you are faithful and you are so very generous. And, God, you are a God who can accomplish the things that we've longed for and talked about in this call. God, be God. Be God. We trust you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I want to thank everybody who stayed on to watch us tonight, uh, Facebook Live. I appreciate you all and I hope you all were blessed. Um, and just thanking everybody for taking out time um, to be on this uh, uh, Zoom Live tonight. So thanks, everybody. Love you guys much. Love and you guys. Be awesome. All right. Love you. Love you all too. Love you too.